Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and, and try. welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, business, and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go. With the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards. Today I've caught Greg Hahn. Fellow call-to-action catch George Tannenbaum describes Greg as a legend who deserves to be a legend. Producing creative work that works for decades, he's won pretty much every award in the Adland Arsenal. More importantly than that, he's one of our most significant industry voices, talking the talk as his US ad agency of the year mischief walks the walk. Greg says, when it's at its best, advertising can be like the closing argument in the court of public opinion. All rise, as we say, welcome to the show, Greg. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Wow, that was quite an introduction, I must say. That's a lot to live up to. Seven quickfire questions, Greg. Mac or PC? Mac. Has anyone said PC? Has anyone ever said PC? Yeah, yeah, we've just ended recording immediately. Bark or meow? Meow. Mondays or Tuesdays? Tuesdays. Nike's I Am Not A Role Model or VW Snowplow? Oh, gosh. Uh, Nike. Three more. Offense or defense? Offense. George Tannenbaum or Bob Hoffman? George. I know George. Right, lastly, artificial intelligence or human stupidity? Human stupidity all the way. <laughs> Those were far too easy. Yeah, it's almost like an Easter egg of my posting. Listen, Greg, thank you so much for joining us. We, um, we touched on this briefly before we recorded. So on Call to Action, we love to celebrate the often weird and wonderful ways that guests have ended up in the career they're in now. So if we go right back to the beginning, what was your first ever job? And then what was your first proper advertising-related gig? Well, a couple couple of first ever jobs. So, you know, in high school, like one of the weirdest jobs I had was, um, believe it or not, anybody who knows me is not going to believe I actually did this, but I was a door-to-door salesman for setting up appointments for my cousin who worked in the siding business. So what that what that entailed was basically me knocking on strangers' doors in like some shady neighborhoods, and um, asking them if they would want me to improve the value of their house, <laughs> you know, and setting up these appointments. And uh, needless to say, I wasn't that great at it. <laughs> I was pretty much I felt bad for the people I was disturbing, and uh, got invited into some weird houses. But um, yeah, so well taught me a little bit. How old were you around that time, Greg? Oh my god, I think I was like seventeen or eighteen. Sounds mildly terrifying. Yeah, yeah, it was completely terrifying. I did it with one of my high school friends. My cousin worked in this, like I said, the siding place, and he, you know, paid us for every appointment we could set up. So we spent the summer doing that, and probably made very little money. But that was that was uh, pre-advertising. That was uh, before I was even in college. And then, and then, what did you do then from from your door-to-door salesman? How did that evolve into into advertising or into sort of creative fields? Well, I quickly learned what. Didn't want to do, uh, um, but going into college, I was actually a journalism and psychology kind of major. I had two two interests, and that, oddly enough, I guess it makes sense, uh, led me to advertising. I, I graduated with a journalism degree, and 
kind of knew I wanted to get in advertising, but had no idea what the different roles were or how to do that. But um, right after college, I went to Ohio State. I moved to San Diego just because I liked the weather. I had a friend out there. So I crashed at his place for a little bit, and I got an internship at an ad agency. I had no idea what to do. And it was happened to be a really great a- agency, and um, they showed me, you know, basically what what it took to get a job, which was a portfolio. And I had not had I did not have a portfolio at that time. I just basically had my resume and some journalism scra- scraps, you know. So uh, and I spent a year just like work, kind of learning from those guys, working there for free, basically. And then I had another job on the side, and uh, ended up like putting together a Xerox copy scribble of of enough ads to get me a first job so you've always been a writer of sorts so going back to your uh journalism focus what didn't that fulfill because it's interesting that often i've talked to lots of people who would describe themselves as writers but probably leaning closer to I've, i've used this term before pure writing which i don't mean to suggest advertising is unpure at all but there's a there's a commercial creativity um within it but journalism in terms of more editorial and reporting type writing it's interesting that you also had an interest in psychology which i think is really really important and quite telling for people in advertising to be interested in and study human behavior so how come you didn't go the journalism route uh, well first of all i do love psychology i'm still kind of fascinated with it that's like a side hobby of mine um just how human behavior but back to journalism i think what what was not super inspiring to me was just the fact that it was collecting facts and putting them in order. There wasn't a lot of creativity to it. It felt more like doing um, homework than than expressing myself, you know, at least the way it was taught to me back in the day. I mean, I think right now with blogs and other things, there's a lot more personality you can put into it. But back in the day, you know, it was like a few newspapers that you could work for. And it was, you know, starting off at the, at the middle, just taking notes and putting them on paper. And at what stage then did you say that you were keen to get in? You knew you were keen to get into advertising because that's quite rare. Um, often we 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 talk to people and I interview people who aren't even really fully aware of the industry at all till their maybe early twenties. So it's always interesting to to talk to someone who had some sort of intent early on to explore the industry. Hey man, I'm I'm a child of the '80s, so I grew up with like bosom buddies and all these shows. Like you know, um, what was the other one? There's like a bunch of advertising shows that it just looked like a cool, fun job, whereas opposed to other the other shows that that um, you know, TV characters were working on. The people in the in advertising agencies were like fun and had creative jobs. I was like that that looks like fun, you know. And that was basically my, my sole inspiration. I I got in right before a lot of kids started coming out of these portfolio schools i didn't even know they existed you know like miami ad school or creative circus or, or whatever that was called at the time um, and did it prove to be a cool fun job when you when you started off in san diego it did yeah actually <laughs> um yeah the people i met were super cool they some really great creatives um, john vitro john robertson were there and you know to this day there's still like one i still idolize those guys yeah. So what type of work would you do from the off then? Because was it was it more of a, like an apprenticeship type role or was it straight into writing? Yeah. I mean, they, they, they kind of even didn't have an internship job. I just kind of crashed there. So, um, but I just kind of, I learned, you know, they were doing a lot. It was a lot of print. It was local San Diego advertising. So it was no TV or anything like that. And at that point, print was still the predominant kind of advertising vehicle and out of home. 
that kind of thing. And I think for a student, like learning print and out of home are great places to start. It's like the purest form. There's no there's no tricks to to you know crutches to use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's quite. Um, I suppose there's no complex mechanics to it. I think we're you know as an industry, and we've spoken about this at length before with with past guests. We're almost too obsessed with the channel and not thinking about the thing that we're sending to the channel. And I suppose with print, and my background also was print, there wasn't really the opportunity aside from media type and placement. So I suppose there wasn't really an opportunity to allow yourself to overcomplicate it. Right. It was pure distillation of your thought. You couldn't rely on the technology to be the idea. So did it feel good then, that first role then? Because because often people sidestep, and, and, and again, to reference past conversations we've had, we tend to see that um, account management tends to be the kind of gateway drug into, into advertising agencies. But you, with your interest in psychology, which which remains true, which is great in writing, to then work in an agency in a more creative uh, capacity, working in print and out of home, that must have felt really natural and 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 and, and you know happy for you. Yeah, it did absolutely. Like, I I didn't even know at the time that account management or account side of it was 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 a job in advertising. I kind of thought it was all one job. You know, but, but I quickly, you know, once after that was the benefit of hanging out in an agency is you just kind of saw what the roles were you kind of learn how an office agency environment works. So I immediately gravitated towards the creatives and the, the writers and art directors that's at this agency. And was that an independent agency? It was, it was called Franklin's Stores. I don't know. I think they're still around. It's so funny. I haven't really even thought about them in like 20 years since I've been there. But now that we uh, bring it up, it's... It's actually a good place to start. So did you go then from there? How soon after that role and, and you had experience there, did you join the networks? Well, my first job after that was in LA at a place called Mendelssohn's Design. And yeah, it was a small agency. But the great thing about that was I was like the only writer there. And me and my partner got to do a lot of uh, a lot of the work. And at, at the time, it was just like they were, they were trying to push things. They wanted edgy work. So we got to do... You know, I got a lot of stuff produced for my book and they did hire some great freelancers. Like, and actually the director, Harold Einstein was another writer. They, they brought on a couple of years after I was there. I learned so much just by hanging out with him and, you know, seeing how he operates in an agency and but anyone who knows Harold Einstein just knows he's amazing on a call and things like that. So I tried to just observe. How did your role change when you did make that, that leap and move to LA? Well, I was producing stuff for one thing. And then, and then, and then there's this pressure of like, when you're an intern, nobody cares what you do. Like you don't have to perform when you're the only writer at a small agency that in your junior, there's a lot of pressure. Like I, you know, and that's one thing, you know, you kind of have to learn to deal with throughout the, your, your entire career is this, this looming pressure to perform with every assignment. Is that something that just increased as time went on as you then you know, moved on and were at Fallon and, and BBDA. Was that something that just consistently increased? For sure. It haunts me <laughs> to this day. It's always like you're, you're, you're as good as the last thing you put out. It starts from scratch every, every day. Yeah. Well, that's a bit, I mean, it's uh, it, it sounds stressful, but I suppose in, in some respects, that's also a healthy mindset. Yeah. After you do it for a while, you kind of realize you will come up with something. You know, yeah. <laughs> At the beginning, that's where all the stress was. Is like, I don't know if I can do this. Is this going to be the time they find out that I'm a failure? And after a while, you're kind of like, okay, uh, worst comes to worst, I'll come up with something. Well, to be honest, I, I mean, this 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 will probably jump in the gun slightly here, but there's something that I've that I really admired when I was going through all the research that we've done for today's episode, and it's the frequency that I've seen you talk about uh, saying no 
to work and why it's important to say no to work. But presumably that's part of the mix. If you are truly, and I, you know, I don't suppose this is 100% accurate, but if we are truly judged by our most recent work, and there's you know significant truth to that, you have to be careful what you say yes to. Yeah, I think as a as a creative working in an agency, you don't have a lot of choice. So where the, where no comes into play is now that I own an agency, it's it's really about like what clients we take on and what kind of projects and business we take on. It's not because I think it will be hard or difficult. It's more because we they don't really necessarily want what we do. So like why force it? Or it's a kind of client that we don't think we can make you know good work for. It's just going to frustrate our people. And I'm super protective of our people. So I, I want to keep that, you know, the culture as as alive as I can. There's a few lines that I've uh, highlighted. And in fact, I, I had a bit of a, an argument with myself over which quotes of yours I'd use in your, in your intro, um, because there's, there's at least three that I've lifted. One um, referencing your agency mischief was that your, uh, you referenced the, the doing something or building something with less layers, pretense and other unnecessary complications um the other thing i really admired actually and there's two points to this statement was you were going to make some people uncomfortable and we're going to bring the joy back um and bringing the joy back as a as a, as a kind of i suppose just as sentiment is something that i've spoken about in various guises with all sorts of people in the industry and i wondered when you talk about bringing the joy back whose joy were you referring to are you referring to your own personal joy of working in the industry or was it a, a broader statement than that i think the answer is both but mostly in terms of a broader broader aspect because if you looked at some you know when i was building mischief or thinking about what i wanted to do next i was just like where where would i love to go and i couldn't really find a place and i just looked around like what's what's really happening in advertising everybody seems so miserable like you look on some blogs, everyone's complaining. There's everyone. It's like, why? We have good jobs. This should be fun. Like, let's take a step back and go, what we do is actually really fun and we're lucky to do it. And nobody's appreciating that. So let's build a place that celebrates that. And just like, it doesn't have to be so hard. I think we get in our own way as an, as an industry. Yeah, funny enough, Beth, you know who, who produces this, this show with me. Only yesterday she had a bit of an out-of-body experience where... She was recording some voiceovers for a client of us, and we had a, a couple of we had a, our voice actor in, and he had to make all sorts of weird and wonderful noises that <laughs> she was recording. And she said she just had this out of body experience where she just smiled and said, "This is my job. <laughs> yeah, I actually get to do, do this." You kind of have to do that. Like daily, we look at our text, you know, about like notes and revisions and all those things. Like this is fucking crazy what we do. <laughs> like, yeah. How 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 did you find actually creating it? Because I'm you know testament to what you have created already. Because it's it's quite rightly it's won so many accolades, both in terms of awards and people's comments and commentary around what you do at Mischief. But how has it been actually creating that from from pretty much right? It's been the most freeing part of my career, I will say, and that is because I have great partners in 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 uh, No Fix Address and in the people we we've got at Mischief, like. Everybody's really good at what they do and they complement each other. So it's not like anybody, anybody's getting in each other's way. We're all just here to, to help each other. And it's kind of like, like I said earlier, just the industry getting out of its own way is the biggest, you know, the biggest reward you can give yourself. And how do you avoid the, the you know, the, that bureaucracy that does plague a lot of agencies? Well, we're lucky that we are able to start from scratch. A lot of agencies just inherit a system and that rolls on for decades, right? 
So I was kind of like, you know, gone through the system. I saw what was working, what wasn't working. And I was like, knew what to build. It was also in a time we, you know, we, we started in 2020 when the beginning of the pandemic, it was a time when everyone, everything was up for reevaluation and no one knew what model was going to be the next model. So we're kind of like, let's just take fresh, a fresh look at everything. And that, that comes down to just like the way we review work and who gets, you know, who, who's in on the briefing and how we do briefings and all just everything it was basically built from a sense of collaboration and make it all about the work and nothing else. No, not about any sort of personal politics or rules or anything. The question we ask is like, is this conversation making the work better? If it is awesome. If it's not, don't have that conversation, like change it. How significant a part is the agency itself and, and, and the brand mischief itself? Because again, I know you've um, quite rightly flagged that a lot of agencies are really bad at branding themselves. Yeah, from day one, I wanted to start an agency, but I also want to start a brand as an agency because I do think like they all sort of blend together. And my thinking was like, if you put put yourself out in the world and you know what you stand for, you'll attract the right kind of clients, and that will be like this self fulfilling prophecy where you do the kind of work that attracts the kind of clients you want. That you know, just they see that work and you do more of it you know, feeds the system a bit. If you kind of put your your work as your best new business tool and create a create a place that people know what they're getting when they when they come to the door. It makes every every relationship a lot stronger, a lot easier. Is that why it's important to say no to work too? Yes. Exactly. You know, we've had a lot of opportunities and a lot of big ones that just like that will change the agency and we've seen that happen so many times to other big agencies of like you're beholden to the client that nobody wants to work on or that just demoralizes the agency and you can't let go of them because you've built a, an agency around them. So we just want to be really careful of that. And we will take on big clients, but we have to be like-minded. And so we have some of those clients and they're great. And we have open, honest discussions and they want what we do and we we all support each other. Yeah, that's interesting. Is it? Does it tend to be a collaborative decision? Does it tend to be a, a vote of sorts? It's kind of like... Um, we we all respect each other's opinions. We listen. You know, obviously someone's got a lead, but there's a lot of um, you know trust and faith in each other here. And I suppose in in some respects that might shape the way that you grow in terms of headcount, perhaps. I mean, I I think um, I think it's too easy, and I say this with my you know relatively tiny independent agency hat on when we've talked about growth in the past i've preferred to talk about financial growth of the agency not necessarily growth by headcount but there is a you can you can very quickly become uncomfortable by rushing growth of headcounts and i suppose in some respects that has to be a key factor that you're you're considering when you when you yeah we're we're very slow to hire and that's on purpose because i think that you know culture is everything and if you start bringing in people who aren't like-minded or people that are just filling spaces then you suddenly erode that culture and before you know it you're just like everybody else so we're very intent on who we hire who we bring in and what kind of people you know we we like to you know bring into the mischief world do you think there is a right size a natural size for an agency like mischief it's hard to say. I mean, we're trying. It's hard to look at any other model and go, "That's what we want to be," because we're trying to do something different. You know, I, I I focus more on impact than size. So, what impact are we having on on the outside world, on the industry, on our, our clients' business? Not, you know, you could do that with three people. You can do it with 150 people. 
or neither, you know, like both those models are, could be wrong. I've, um, one of the things I, I, I really admire about you is, is how simple you make things sound and how at the premise of a lot of the success, and that's a nod to your Tubi ads, even at the Super Bowl recently is, is the simple, and I mean that in the most, you know, highly respectful way, um, strong core idea there is. Um, and I found parallels in it in an interview you gave with a uh, little black book where they asked specifically about those ads and, and the results. And you simply said, I guess it comes down to a couple of questions. How many people were talking about Tubi before the Super Bowl and how many people are talking about them now? So in terms of like as a metric of success, that's really one of the most important, if not the most important metric we should worry about. But there are those layers and layers of, of, of that have been added and, and we've, we've, we overcomplicate far too easily. So having that simplicity is uh, very refreshing. Yeah, thank you. And then that was um, all due to our client as well, because their KPI was like, what we want people talking about us in, in the day after the Super Bowl. And, you know, they were not a very well-known brand before and finding up against some some heavy hitters like Netflix and, you know, Apple TV and all these other streaming services. So to have them top of top of mind the day after it was, you know, a huge task they set up, but a simple one. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very refreshing. I mean, people talk about, I suppose that comes under all sorts of other, uh, I mean, semantics poses big threats and problems in our industry, whether that's awareness and, as you say, top of mind or a metric of, of fame, for example. But at its heart, it's literally that. How many people are talking about it now as a result? I must ask, I've got to ask you about cats because Bark or Meow was a very intentional quickfire question in the beginning. The cat references, I mean, you, you, I, I've tripped over a few actually in, in terms of the research. And I, and I feel like it's, uh, when when I've understood it, it makes sense. But I, but I wonder if people will understand the link between mischief and, and cats. Can you explain a bit more about that? Well, the beautiful thing is they don't need to. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> at the very surface, cats are just cute. But, but there is there is actually some thinking behind it and, there, and a reason. And if people are super curious, they can go to our website and pull down the menu and there's a there's a um, there's this uh, bookmark under meow that has a whole story but there's a story behind it i could quickly go through that if you want me to just yeah please yeah yeah so it it came from actually an article that i read by one of my favorite writers is tom robbins i'm not sure if you're familiar with him but yes i am yeah yeah great writer like i love i just love his use of language so i found an old article was from like the 70s that he had written it was about this um blues musician who was playing on Big Mama Cass's original recording of the song Hound Dog. And if you listen to that recording now, you can see it on YouTube. You can hear a bunch of people barking at the end of that song, you know, like a dog. And the interview was with a guy who said, who went up to the, the musician, musician and said, um, you know, that was really great. I love that you were barking at the end of Hound Dog is so creative. And the, the musician said, yeah, I wanted to meow, but that was too hip for them. And I just thought that that was fucking brilliant because, you know, and, and Tom made this point too. It's like to bark at the song Hound Dog is like creative, cute, but it's not breakthrough or holy shit, how did you get there? It's kind of expected creativity. But to meow is like fucking brilliant and it's dangerous and has backstory and all these other exciting things to it. And, you know, just thinking as an industry, we're, we're pretty settled 
you know, it's too easy to, to just go with the bark because it's just creative enough for people to think you're doing something interesting. Whereas if you push it and go to the meow, it's like you're, you're, you've reached new territory. You've suddenly created something that uh, is entirely unexpected, but makes sense. Right. So I think especially today, like when there's so much battling for your attention, you can't afford to just do creative enough. Like everyone's doing that now. So how do you take it up next month, next notch? And that's really what the meow stands for for us is like when everyone else is barking, we prefer to do meow. So now you understand the story of the, why there's cats all over the place. But again, it really comes down to because they're cute. <laughs> what more than being memorable and unexpected they're just cute. yeah no, actually, i actually have two right by me right now asleep fast asleep both upside down it's not like i'm obsessed but i do like i do like the idea behind it yeah what kind of what what it stands for for mischief yeah it's great are you familiar with um party cannon they're a death metal scottish band and no their poster of their their uh gigs that oh they have, yeah love the rounds and they've got this logo which is a bit like the crayola uh crayola logo and, and and it's the same logic there right it's just been memorable and unexpected yeah brilliant and i think that it's been intellectualized to the point of being called you know anything from meaningless distinction to you know just being unexpected and standing out which is which again comes back to my point earlier about how refreshingly simple yet smart what you do and practice and what you talk about um is and and hence why it's so refreshing because everyone else seems to bark or or a more complicated version of barking they yeah they go three layers before the bark comes out but yeah, <laughs> exactly so what's um what's on the horizon at mischief at the moment then because obviously you had huge success uh, during the super bowl is there anything else we need to be um, looking out for on the horizon? Yeah, I'm not sure when this is going to run, but we're in production right now on three or four things. We've got a lot going on. Um, hard to say what's going to be next because there's it, every day is something like five new things and we're talking to a lot of new clients and things like that. So it's that's what I love about Mischief is every day is something random comes up that we did not expect to come in a great way. So, so far that's been really, really fun. So I can't predict the future. I can only tell you what's happening now. Um, before I go to listener questions, have you got any tips for any creatives out there who maybe lack joy in their work and want to rediscover it in the same way you have? I think so much of our joy, especially as a creative, when I was when I was going through it, was pinned on the result of like, if this gets produced, then I'll be happy. If this wins an award, then I'll be happy. I think you got to enjoy the process. Like just, just be happy that you came up with something you like. And that's always been for me. It's like, I'm happiest when I first come up with something I really like. And then of course I start to protect it and things like that. And I get anxious, but just enjoy that process because, you know, happiness is fleeting. It's kind of always at, at the horizon and you shouldn't live life that way. No. Yeah. Well said. How significant are awards, do you think? Well, now that I'm an owner of an agency or, you know, I think they they help for new business and they help for for um, visibility as a, as a creative. They help you, you know, when you're trying to make a name for yourself. It's hard to say. I think some of it's misguided. Some so much of them, the attention, why not? And one thing people should know about if you're starting on this business is it feels way worse to lose than it does good to win. So <laughs> don't feel bad if you don't win an award. It's 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 not all it's cracked up to be. 
Yeah, no, so I'm I'm pleased you clarified that. In fact, I mean, I, it was a deliberate question because I wondered if if awards were part of the layers and pretense that I referenced from a quote of yours earlier or not. No, I mean, I think we do stuff that we like, and if it wins awards, that's awesome. But we don't do stuff for awards. Uh, so most of my favorite stuff I've done in my career, I don't even know if it's ever won much, but I just like it. And I think to me, that's kind of interesting. Uh, um, if if you look at the most polarizing artwork in the world it's usually the most interesting but it might not be the most popular yes that's true i wonder if also they're often the most hated in some instances and i think that can be true with advertising and in fact going back to your comment about the meowing not barking i find that when it's the most divisive ads that are the most effective because they're they're more memorable because you dislike them just as just as much as they're memorable because you like it yeah you don't want to be in the middle yeah, exactly that. Cool. Right. Um, I've got a couple of listener questions I want to uh, to move on to now. All right. Boom. Sorry. It's just most podcasts would drop a jarring advert into this vacuous point in space and time. But Gas don't do podcast ads. And if we did, we'd probably subvert the form in a clever way that ironically gets you to contact the host, Giles Edwards, on 01189. 952007. Only the other day, some pod listening companies did just that, calling us for guidance on strategy and direct mail. Please don't do that. Now, back to the show. No, I am your father. Yeah, I had Yoda pinned for Luke's father. Anyway, hang on. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, but we do have two for you, Greg. Starting with Ollie, uh, this is a good question. How do you approach a more serious brief like your work for the Pfizer vaccine rollout? Yeah, that is a good question. I think with mischief, it's it doesn't have to be funny. We don't have one house style, despite what people think what it has to be is interesting or a new way into it. So like with Pfizer, we just found a conversation people weren't having about vaccines. And at that time, you remember a lot of the debate was about science it was about like whether the vaccines were safe and whether that it was based on real science and all this other talk. What we focused on was what you're missing by not getting the vaccine. You know, all these things that COVID had taken away from us and wouldn't it be nice to just have those back. So we made the reward more important than you know, the emotion more important than the, the rational science. Based on either way, what the, what the tone is, it's always finding a human insight. That, that's the common thread. Yeah, so that's kind of the, that is the kind of house style, albeit they're not all the same type of words. And do you have a preference for the type of, of, of uh, problem that you're trying to solve, the type of brand or sector or brief that you work on? Or is it all consistently around finding that one interesting thing to build out from? It's that, but it's interesting the way you phrase that question. It wasn't like an assignment or anything. It's like what kind of problems you like to solve, and that's it. It's like it's like interesting problems, and we spend a lot of time on strategy uh, and a lot of time on redefining the problem. So, you know, our part of what we call the mischief mindset is find the most interesting problem, and how do you solve it? I've often found uh, a similar interest in the most peculiar often B2B industries, um, and I was talking about that the other day, that, that people think that there's a boring product or a boring sector, 
And I mean, they might be true if you're measuring it through, you know, different lenses. But but for me, and I, I, I think I presume for you too, then it is it, whether it's copper wiring or some kind of uh, a product that that is, is is something you wouldn't necessarily come across in your normal day to day consumer life. It's finding the bit that's interesting and and going from there. The thing that the thing that unites everything is that you're selling to humans. So there's always a human, you know, rational or irrational need to, that needs to be filled and it's like finding that insight and that you know it goes back to psychology of like what's what's the need we're actually trying to fill and how do people think about it and how will that make them feel and the result of the result kind of thing so it's uh you know i find humans super fascinating <laughs> i say that like i'm not one of them but um <laughs> you're a cat i think are you? <laughs> yeah might be uh, in my past life but I do. I just, find, I just find human behavior like endlessly fascinating, and, and what motivates people. So that's part of you know, if you go into an assignment like with those with that lens, it kind of makes anything interesting. Yeah, 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 for sure. What was the what was the psychology or the thinking behind your your Super Bowl hijack? Oh, uh, that was really just like how do you surprise people in the moment? It, it's, it's it's understanding the environment in which that ad would be seen. So you, if you think about it, that's the one event that everyone is hyper focused on TV. Like all eyes are on that screen, right? And the tensions are high, and everybody is sort of like the energy is all geared towards one thing. If something comes to totally fuck that up, what would happen, right? Like what would the, what, how do you throw a bit of chaos into that situation? And even if it's a commercial, people are still silencing each other and shushing each other to watch it. But we wanted to play with that that idea of like what happens when you disrupt people's pattern. Yes, yeah, very much. It did disrupt people's patterns. And how did how did the most? I know I'm meant to be doing listener questions, but I wanted to dig deeper into this um, earlier. Actually, how did how did the most uh, the largest part of your audience react to that? Because presumably you had very positive, but equally a few negative reactions. For the most part, people got the joke and they some really great uh responses on on uh, tiktok and things like that i think the reaction was surprised and holy shit they got me and there's some funny celebrity tweets and things like that but i think yeah everyone it was it was something that everyone experienced at the same time and kind of uh, everyone had fun with sharing what happened to them and i think that's part of what makes it viral like i think about viral and this is a little bit off topic but i think about viral as the person sharing it is the star of every viral video so it's whether you share what your experience was with that video or what reflection it has on you by sharing it. That's kind of what makes things viral. So a big part of what kicked you know that into the viral sphere was people just sharing, this is what I was doing when I saw it. Oh my God, I thought my roommate changed the channel, that kind of thing. And it's really nice when, because there's there's like a loop to connect, isn't there? You just experience something and there's there's like, it, it requires the, the, the person whose attention you're, I suppose hoodwinking or fooling or tricking it requires that for it to work that's what i think all you know great ads do question two is from uh, simone simone asks what's the most important lesson you've learned since launching your own agency oh gosh there's been so many it's been like going to grad school for advertising agencies but the one thing is that just remain true to yourself like that's the whole thing it's like be who you are don't try to be anything else and you'll satisfy the people that get you and you won't and you'll weed out the ones that don't and i, and I suppose um because you're well you're three years in now or you're yeah your almost third year. yeah two and a half yeah you um you still learning 
do you think? Every day. Yeah, 100%. I can't tell you what, but <laughs> something new every day, honestly. There, there's a lot of this, you know, as, as far as like ownership, there's a lot of the business side, which I kind of kept clear of throughout my career that I'm kind of learning and, and started getting into, but I have great people that take care of most of the hard stuff. Yeah, that's good. You need that. But also, actually, I mean, going back to finding things that are interesting, there's interesting sides to the business that I think people probably don't have any exposure to whatsoever until they start, you know, quite rightly, uh, perhaps. Um, but uh, but having access to that, that you can then respond and, and react to it with fresh eyes and decide if it's right or wrong or try something different, which is... Uh, and we don't answer to shareholders, so we can make the purest decision we we feel. Like it doesn't have to be like, what will they think? It's what do I think? Or what do we think? Precisely, and I think that can be quite a crippling fear for lots of uh, the big networks. Yeah, for sure. The final part of the interview, then, Greg, is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. Uh, starting with, what advice would you give to your younger self? Hmm. Well, I kind of touched on this earlier, but <laughs> I should have taken my own advice, which is like, enjoy the process. Don't get too hung up on the, on, you know, what's going to happen next. I was very anxious as a, as a creative, a junior. And to some extent I still am like nothing's done until it's done, but you got to live in the moment as much as possible. Read the book, um, Eckhart Tolle's Power of Now. That That's kind of life-changing. Uh, number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Oh, 100% pitches, spec pitches. Yeah, I think they're like the, the worst test of an agency. For one thing, like it depends on who you're going against. A lot of agencies hire freelancers. We don't do that, but it's not even like the real people doing the work. And it's also just like, it's not the way you work with a real client. It feels like it's a pass-fail test, whereas the real world is, it's like iterations and, and more collaborative. I um I'm pleased to hear you say that. I, I had a really good conversation with um Mr. Whipple with uh, Luke Sullivan about pitches uh, last year at and I shared I mean our agency's position is we don't do spec pitches and we won't do free pitches and I'm in a very privileged position to have that as a as a rule in the agency of course um cash flow and financial needs and salaries need paying and in some instances it might result in in that changing so i understand that it's not as simple as that for a lot of businesses but do you do many spec pitches and actually let me add a bit more context i was with someone yesterday who used to work with us and he's now at one of the big networks um and their pitch engine if you like within the business is almost the same size as their client engine. I mean, it is vast. The the, the is a twenty four seven. The work has been done on a spec. You know, it's very rarely, if ever, paid for. Um, and I just see it as a huge problem that actually we shouldn't expect clients to fix. The agencies should be the one that that seeks it. it. It's a bit of an arms race though, because if one person does it, then it blows it for everybody, right? So you kind of have like. It, it, there could be a no spec pitch or a no spec rule amongst agencies, but again, one person's going to jump in and try to go the extra mile, so to speak. And it's you know it, that that's an unlevel playing field suddenly. So we we are very deliberate about who we pitch, and if we do spec, even more so. It's got we have to feel like this is a client that's in line with what we do and better meant for our people and all that kind of stuff. And you know you just have to do it sometimes, but we try to avoid it as much as possible. I think what What's really helped us again, it comes back to being a brand is 
clients come to us and without a pitch, just to give us assignment or we'll work together and we'll get an AOR relationship. I think it's a much purer way to, to find a partner. Yeah, I mean, I've given this advice before, but my advice to agencies who want to sort of shy away or, or start to slowly move away from pitching is, is, in my experience, explaining why you think the pitch process is flawed and might not be best for the client's objectives has led to such um, official grown-up conversations. And very often, client totally gets it and respects you for taking that stance and explaining to them why you think that you would be better working under different conditions. Yeah, that's happened to us a few times. And, you know, clients don't like it as much as we do. Like, it's that huge time suck for them. And, you know, they, they realize they're wasting a lot of resources on it. But um, it just seems to be something we've accepted in advertising. I don't know if any other business does it that way. No, you're right. You're right. Good point. Uh, number three, then, apart from uh, the power of now, which we'll link to, are there any other books that you can recommend to our listeners? Oh, you probably have already read these or had these recommended to you, but I love uh, Rory Sutherland's book, Alchemy. Rory's like a genius. Uh, I just finished Rick Rubin's book. Gosh, what's it called? Um, let me see if I can find it. Um, the Creative Act. Oh, it's so good. Anybody out there in any sort of creative field you read, it's like a spiritual guide to creativity and it's not as heavy as that sounds. It's just like really good, useful read. Um. Another one I, I always recommend is called The Hitmakers and subtitled The Science of Popularity in the Age of Distraction. So you can see how that's highly applicable to what we do. It's, um, it's just like how things, how things catch on. And it's super fun to read. It's got a lot of great case studies in it. And um, it's uh, one of those things, once you read it, you'll kind of get it, how the brain works and how we share things. Yes, that sounds good. Do you read any... Um... Any fiction, any or any non-work related book? Yeah, um, usually trash though. It's like I, if I'm going to read fiction, I just want to turn my brain off. It's kind of like when I watch TV, it's like Law and Order or, or you know, something <laughs> like like I don't want to think. My head, my head's hurting. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's like airport novels. One book I, I read, am currently reading, you know, off and on because it's not one you need to keep up with. It's good. it's called Nothing But a Good Time, and it, yeah. It is the oral history of hair metal in the 1980s Sunset Strip, and it's fucking brilliant. (laughs) If anyone's ever read The Dirt by Motley Crue, the Motley Crue um, biography, whatever you want to call it, oral history, it's like that, but with like 10 other bands. I wish it. Yeah. It's such a great distraction. Oh, brilliant. We um, uh, Our previous episode was with um, Jenny Romanek from the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, and she has the same thing. I mean, she's this incredible associate professor and director of Ehrenberg Bass and, and, and a scientist in, in many respects by trade. And she made exactly the same point that she just prefers to, to, to be knee deep in trash um, uh, for exactly so many movies I should see, so many books I want, you know, want to read, some, you know, all these shows I want to keep up with. I just can't, you know. I'll turn on a Law and Order, zone out, or give me a forty-eight hours or a Dateline, and you know, I can solve a murder in an hour. I'm, I'm you know, <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Well, we'll link to, um, we'll link to nothing but a good time, the Hitmakers, which which hasn't come up before, so I'm, that's great. Yeah. 
the creative act uh, i think recently we've had that but yeah great that comes very highly recommended alchemy has come up numerous times and in fact rory sutherland has asked me when i recommend it to urge people to go get the audio book not the actual book because i actually did get the audio book because i think he's such a great speaker. oh he is yeah and actually rory being true to rory there's actually a lot in the audio version that you don't get in the print version simply because Rory's a good friend of ours he'll, he won't mind me saying this if you put a microphone in front of Rory you'll get a lot more out of him than you will if you ask him he to write definitely one of a kind I would not want to be on the podcast following his <laughs> no no no, no. Well, we had to make his a two-parter um, for that very reason um, fantastic well they're great they're great recommendations and then number four Greg is we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour depending on your view to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you dedicate this episode? Yeah, a really quick, easy answer is my wife. And for a million reasons, but if we if we keep it to the world of advertising and mischief, uh, you know, when I was looking for something to do after BBDO, I talked to a lot of places, a lot of agencies, and, you know, holding companies, mostly the traditional route. And then when I started talking to No Fixed Address, Dave and Serge, the owners of that agency, and about building something completely different and new um, and untested. She was the one who said, like, you're going to do that. Like after, like, I'm like, oh, I'm not sure. I'm still looking around. And she's like, no, you're going to, you're going to end up working with those guys. I'm like, why? And she goes, because every time you talk to them, you just seem happy afterwards. And you're not like that with the other people. And I was like, wow, that's a really good insight. And, and to take a chance on like, there's no, there's no, there's no plan that this is going to work. There's no holding company that's going to support us or not support us, so to speak. But there's no, um, you know, like there's no safety net there. It was just like, we're going to start something that we're trying from scratch and see, see what happens. And she was like, that's the one you should do because that makes you happy. And she was 100% right. Awesome. Fantastic. Am I allowed to use her name? Yeah, Mandy Hoveda. She's actually in advertising too. We met in advertising. Oh, perfect. Well, this episode is very proudly dedicated to Mandy. Amazing face. Oh, that's going to score me so many points, too. I love it. <laughs> so as a, a final call to action, everyone listening, if you head over to this episode, there will be links to everything discussed. We'll link to the work, um, the mischiefs we've spoken about for Tubi. We'll link to Mischief's website. Do check out the uh, cat stories. We'll link to all four of those books we've referenced. How else can our listeners get more Greg Hard? If you want more, I'm not sure you do, but if you do, uh, probably LinkedIn, you know, is, is the, the place to be right now. It seems to be the, the social network everyone's connecting on. So you can hit me up there. Please don't DM me with uh, wanting to have coffee because I'm so bad at that. I'll, even if I say I'm going to do it, it's like, I will have to cancel. I'm just, my schedule sucks and I'll just look like an asshole. So um, <laughs> you, you can follow me, be friends with me, um, whatever, but um, don't don't make me let you down. Nice. Um, Greg, I've really enjoyed talking to you. It's been a, a real privilege uh, and a pleasure. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is very fun and I, I love the podcast. So I will continue listening even after mine. Uh, finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review. Keep your questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find GASP online or you can email call to action at gasp.agency.
solution But I try And I try And I try And I try